So, Mark. <laughs> yes? <laughs> what do you think of plays based on movies? Uh, I don't think I've ever seen one. Really? No. Well, this is odd now that I'm thinking of it. I don't yeah. know if I have. Well, I've seen Mary Poppins. I've seen some of the Disney ones. I haven't even seen any of those. Well, it's definitely a thing that's probably yeah. a little more common than it was 20, 30 Snow years ago. Snow White, Lion King. There's not a stage version of Disney Snow White. Not Snow White. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Beauty and the Beast. Ble- Beauty and the Beast. There you go. And the movie we're talking about today, there is a stage version of. Yes. I found out about it just before we started recording. <laughs> so in 2004 in London, they staged an adaptation of When Harry Met Sally starring Luke Perry and Alison Hannigan. Wow. Cool. By all accounts, it was not good. How many nights did it run? Do you know? It had like a full run. It did? Yeah. Ooh. And like I said, all of the reviewers hated it. I read a lot. Yeah. The weirdest thing to me about it is that they kept the like real couple testimonial stuff from the movie. Oh, that would be very hard to put in a play. And so they made it like a plot point that Alice and Hannigan like collects these videos or something. And so every once in a while, the action in the play would stop and you would be watching a projection of people talking about how they met. What? It's very That strange. sounds awful. It's very strange. But speaking of adaptations of play Anytime of you movies, say, but speaking of... It's not Howard the Duck. I get really nervous. As much as I wish it were a stage version of Howard the Duck. No, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Bridget Jones's Diary. Okay. There is a musical version of Bridget Jones's Diary in the works. I think I knew like, this. Like, kind of stalled yeah. in the works. They had a reading of it in 2009. Yeah, it's been like that for a while now. Right. They've got the director and choreographer of Billy Elliot attached to it. Amazing. And the music was written by Lily Allen. No, stop it. And some of that music is available on the internet. Oh my god. And I have one of the songs here titled, Wanker! Exclamation point. Oh my god. Well, now I know why they had to get Lily Allen. Okay, but to be honest, that that kind of works. It does. Like, it really fits. So, she gave an interview in 2014 where she said, Look, I've written all this stuff. There's a script, but it doesn't look like anything's happening with it. Yeah. But, like, five or six of the songs are on YouTube. <laughs> she just recorded them. That's amazing. Yeah. That is a very Lily Allen song. I meant to but mention it. But it also it, works. I meant to mention it in our Bridget Jones episode, so I had to bring it back. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I could not find any video from the reading. I tried really hard. By all accounts, the script is... Okay. Fine. Yeah. Oh, it's me. Hello. Welcome to Heart of Podness. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories to answer the age-old question, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? 
are they even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. Now, today, it's definitely not a one-scene thing, because we're digging into one of the most famous examples of the golden age of rom-coms. Maybe the thing that kicked it off? And we've got a guest here to help us with it. Hi, I'm Catherine. Hello! Tell us a bit about yourself, Catherine. Well, I, um, I didn't think about this part. Catherine's a lost soul trying to find herself, apparently. (laughs) Aimlessly flying through the universe, one hand out towards the wreckage of her spaceship. Unable to tell us a single thing about herself. Well, Well, anyway, at the very least, Catherine, tell us what movie we're watching today, (laughs) because this was your pick. (laughs) This was my pick. Well, I did meet you guys in college and have been around for a while. Today, we're watching When Harry Met Sally, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. When did you first see this movie? I think I saw this movie when I was about 12 years old on my family's old VHS copy. Was this a... uh, A cardboard VHS case or one of the nice clamshells? Oh, definitely a cardboard case. Oh, of course. Eventually we bought the DVD, but I definitely saw it for the first time on the VHS. I saw the first half hour of it once. A friend was like, oh, this is really good. Let's watch it. And then I promptly fell asleep. So I saw the whole thing for the first time just a couple of days ago. Yeah, I feel like I've seen the movie before, but because of its pop culture importance, it's everywhere. It kind of permeates. Permeates, that's the word I was looking for. There you go. This is why we do a podcast together. Such a perfect Two brains, one show. But yeah, I definitely had not actually seen any part of it until we watched it for the podcast. Yeah, what did you think of it? Uh, It was really fun. I understand why it's as popular as it is, for sure. Like, you can see it setting so many tropes. And that last speech at the end, I've probably seen a clip in, like, every I Love the 80s, all the stuff like that. It shows up everywhere. And I understand why. Yeah, there was a nice line in an essay by Caroline Side at the AV Club. She has a column called When Rom Met Com, where every week she talks about a different rom-com. And she had a nice line in her essay on this one, where she was saying that When Harry Met Sally is kind of the bridge between the old rom- like Annie Howell kind of rom-com to the modern one, where it has a little bit of both and really sets the path forward. Mm-hmm. I would definitely agree with that. Uh, this is one of those movies that when I was packing for college, my mom and I actually fought over who got to keep the copy. And our solution was we bought a digital copy so that we both got to continue to enjoy it. Uh, I would have cut the DVD in half. <laughs> we didn't have that fight because my mom just said... You get none. (laughs) So there was no fight involved. I just didn't get to bring any movies. That works. So this movie, it came out in the summer of 1989. It opened wide on July 21st. It opened to $8.8 million and made 92. And just for the heck of it, I decided to plug that into Box Office Mojo's adjusted to $2018. Right. In 2018 dollars, this movie made $214 million. Oh my god. <laughs> so this movie played like Marvel solo movie money. Right. Like, that's insane. I wonder how much it's made like until now. Oh, if you continue it with like DVD sales and rentals. Yeah. I've actually recently been looking into that. There's not any easy way to track DVD sales as much as there is box office tickets because people report that. So it's a little trickier, but this is all the more significant because this movie was self-financed by the trio that made it, Rob Reiner, who directed it, Nora Ephron, who wrote it, and the producer, Andy Scheinman. The three of them paid for it together. It cost about $16 million 
and then went on to make a lot more than that. Indeed. So good for this movie, and we keep saying it when we're looking at movies from this period, but good for movies like this to make this kind of money. Yeah. I also saw looking that when they originally released, the opening weekend was actually only in 41 theaters, and they made $1.1 million in 41 theaters. Yeah. That's crazy. And that's all. This movie never got above third at the box office. Wait, it was really? the same weekend. It was the same summer as Lethal Weapon 2 and the... Tim Burton Batman. Yeah, that's some stiff competition. Right. So it performed really well against real competition. Yeah, wow. Which is part of what's impressive about it. It's a movie that they actually did it because Reiner and Efren had wanted to work together on something. And Reiner at the time had been married and was now divorced and was dating again and thought that there was a story in there and was talking about it at a lunch with Nora Ephron. This is like the weird mirror version of the B-movie lunch with Jerry Seinfeld and Steven Spielberg, only it gave us a good movie. I don't know what you're talking about, William. The modern classic B-movie. Hashtag B-facts. So anyway, at this lunch, he was pitching this idea and she was like, oh yeah, that sounds like a, a good idea for a movie. So what she did was she interviewed Reiner and then also interviewed Andy Scheinman, the third producer involved, and built a lot of the story based on them talking about their experience going back into dating and what that was like and what they were feeling and what kind of experiences they went through. And so a lot of the pieces of the movie are based on the lives of those three people, Efren, Reiner, and Scheinman. That's actually really interesting, but you can kind of feel it. Like, it does feel very true, in a way. Like, it's relatable. Yeah, for sure. What was Nora Ephron's first movie? Do you know? Like, how far into her career was this? So, Nora Ephron actually got her start, like Sally, as a journalist. And she was married to Carl Bernstein. Yeah. Of Watergate fame. And then he cheated on her, and she divorced him. So she is also now a relatively recently divorced person when they're making this movie. And she actually wrote about that. She wrote a movie called Heartburn about that whole thing. And so this is her coming off of that movie. It's three years after Heartburn is when this comes out, but she had been doing the writing process, interviewing people, putting this whole thing together. But it's relatively early in her career. For Reiner, it's kind of a midpoint. This is his follow-up to The Princess Bride. Oh, great movie. Great movie. Great movie. And what's cool about it is that it does become this reflection of all these different elements of their lives where like there are pieces of Nora Ephron in Sally. Like we're going to talk about this later, but the fake orgasm scene was based on a conversation they were having where they felt like they needed something for Sally to know, like a thing that like women know, but men don't as an inverse of some of the other stuff that was going on. Yeah. And faking an orgasm came up and that's when Reiner was like, oh yeah, put that in the movie. I think they got Meg Ryan's okay first, but they did not. I thought they did. No, no, no. Um, they wrote that into the script before she was cast. But then when they were shooting that scene, there was a whole bit where they felt like she wasn't getting into it enough. And so Rob Reiner sat in the chair and like showed her what he needed. And so he was the one who started like pounding on the table and bringing all of that performance into it. Oh my god, that's incredible. With, of course, his mom sitting two tables away. Oh my god, even more incredible. The, be the best part, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And so, in the midst of that, too, like, the thing where Harry and Sally watch the same stuff on TV and talk on the phone to each other, that's based on Reiner and Scheinman's relationship, where, like, the two of them would do that all the time. That's so cute. I'm a huge fan of that. Not to say that's something I haven't done before, but... I don't think I've done it because when I was really getting into TV, I already had texting. So you would watch and text at the same time. My family will often do um, group FaceTimes to watch the Bachelor finale. Where but why we have. Though? 
about six of us on either a Google Hangout or FaceTiming. See, The Bachelor plays like the American Idol finale game where they make you watch for like four hours and everyone knows you just want the last two minutes. Yeah, I couldn't bring myself, like, I tried to watch this season because everyone's so into it. It's so boring. And I watched it and I was just, I mean, I heard that it is usually better because this season was terrible because Ari is the worst. This season was awful. So... That's probably why, but I was just like, ugh, I really don't see the appeal. Every time he was on screen, I hated it. He was the worst. It was hard to hate him because there was so little there. He was just so boring. He was a vacuum that sucked all the energy out of the TV. (laughs) The most unforgivable sin in television is to be boring. I think my picture dimmed when he was on screen. (laughs) The TV was not interested in watching it. And then called producers and were like, hey, film my breakup. Yeah, I didn't even watch that. I heard about it through Twitter, as you do. As one does. But anyway, so this movie again we're talking when harry met sally ah uh, yes back yes. to the subject at hand <laughs> yes. now we've moved on from bachelor beat with mark and will Coming i live to you every week i feel like there's gotta be a podcast called that already there must be anyway this movie was very well received nora Ephron got an oscar nomination for it for original screenplay good for her mm-hmm. and my favorite random thing that i found out in reading about it was all the name changes that i went through i love when movies go through lots of name changes yeah and so the original one for this was scenes from a friendship which i kind of dig yeah okay and then they went with how they met and then they went with the title which we have not been saying properly the correct title of this movie is when harry met sally dot 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 yes of course the ellipsis is part of the official styling of the movie's title this is true will your script doesn't even have the dot 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 on it yeah i know it's a real failing way to screw up but that final name actually came from while they were shooting it they were shooting under that name how they met and reiner still didn't like it so he created a competition among the crew where he'd send a case of champagne to whatever crew member came up with the title they wound up using. But nowhere could I find who it was that came up with this name. This is definitely the best name by far. Oh, for sure. And hopefully whatever the crew member is got really drunk with their friends. Yeah, got got a lot of champagne. If you know who got the case of champagne, tweet at us, hashtag BFACTS. (laughs) The all-in-one fact hashtag. Any fact is now a BFACT. We've been very clear about this. The number one B and a fact-related hashtag. It's both for bees and for facts. Have we actually looked? That's the hashtag that is most likely to actually have a lot of tweets in it already. Uh, like, no, have we you don't. actually checked it? No. And if you tweet at us, I check it every day. And just for That's those... That's at li- Heart of Podness. Please tweet at us. It amuses me. And just for those listening at home, know that I am sitting here shaking my head. Um, speaking of the awards, Nora Ephron got an Oscar nomination for this film. But also, another thing I love about this movie is the soundtrack. Um, this was kind of the start of Harry Connick Jr.'s kind of mainstream career success. He recorded all of the standards for the soundtrack of this movie and actually toured supporting it. Including... One of the dumbest songs on the planet, which is I Say Tomato, You Say Tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. It's a stupid song. It's so dumb. That's actually, that one's actually Louis Armstrong on the, in the movie. Oh yeah, Um, I used his version. It's still a dumb song. It's still a stupid song. That makes no sense. Speaking of that. The soundtrack of this movie is what won Harry Connick Jr. his first Grammy. Really? Yep. I didn't know that. I have another video for us. You may have seen this, but Mark says he has not. This is Christopher Walken on SNL trying to sing that song. It's pretty great. (laughs) Something must be done. You say potato, and I say potato. You say tomato, and I say tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's go. Sorry. But I I don't think it's how the song goes. What do you mean? 
Uh, are you singing uh, the two words the same? I think you have to say like tomato and potato. You say potato and I say potato. You say tomato and I say tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's a very dumb song. It's a great song. It's definitely it's really not. not. It's a bad it's song. Just because a song is old doesn't make it good. But it's fun. Is it? It's, it's mostly fine. stupid. I mean, like, when Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald sing together, even dumb songs sound good. Right. So it's forgivable. But when you actually be think good. about it, it's like, wow, this song is so weird. Um, But yeah, so let's talk about the movie. Ooh, let's, let's do it. Let's actually get back on track again. What uh, movie are we talking about? What? What movie are we talking about? When Harry Met Sally. Dot, dot, dot. Hashtag dot, dot, dot. Catherine. Since you're our guest, we'll have you lead us through the five points this week to help us understand the romance of when Harry met Sally. Dot, dot, dot. So, where are we starting? All right, we're starting in 1977. Ooh, Star Wars year. When Harry and Sally have just graduated from the University of Chicago and decide to drive to New York City together after graduation. This is my worst nightmare. The idea of being stuck in a car with someone you've never met for 18 hours. Oh my god. That's a good way to make a best friend, Mark. That's a good way to grow to hate someone forever, also. also You say tomato, I say tomato. (laughs) It's also a good way to grow to hate your best friend, so. That too. You know. (laughs) There's a lot of risks involved with taking an 18-hour drive with anybody. That's why you should never go anywhere. Yep, everyone should just stay exactly where they are in this moment. That's why we record at home now. (laughs) So, in this... In this... Uh, What's great when they get in the car is we immediately get a sense of who these characters are. So Sally pulls up at school and Harry is there with his then girlfriend and they are making out disgustingly in public. It's gross. He tells her how much he loves her and Sally pulls up. Sally is a friend of his girlfriend's and has arranged this carpool across the country because Harry and Sally are both moving to New York. Right. And we immediately, when he gets in the car, get this sense of how different they are because Sally's all prepared. She's got a breakdown of the trip and the shifts they can do to divide it up evenly. Meanwhile, he's eating grapes and spitting the seeds at the window. Yeah, it was so weird because I was just like, wait, grapes have seeds? That was my first thought when I was rewatching for this episode was, uh, when did seedless grapes become the mainstream? That I tried to figure that out. If you know, tweet at us, hashtag BFacts. A little unclear. So yeah, so they get in the car, they're driving for a while. They have some nice conversations. She says she's moving to New York so something can happen to her because nothing's ever happened to her. You know, they start to talk a little bit and then they start pulling into the diner. I love as they are pulling into the diner they're arguing about Casablanca and they're arguing about why Ingrid Bergman gets on the plane at the end of the movie Harry looks at Sally and just goes wouldn't you rather be with Humphrey Bogart over the other guy and Sally's just I don't want to spend the rest of my life in Casablanca married to a man who runs a bar which is dumb because he's the coolest character in the movie so Harry then says you'd rather be in a passionless marriage and Sally says and be the first lady of Czechoslovakia, which I think really defines their character. Yeah, you're maybe the ex-first lady of Czechoslovakia, because guess what? The communists take over after the war. You know, I think that's one of the most defining points of their characters. Sally is this person who is super type A, and Harry just wants to have a good time. And well, he spends this trip trying to convince her that he's very dark. Yeah, and yes. poke holes and everyone's fun, kind of. They have an argument about whether he's actually dark or pretend dark. Yeah. And he's a racist 
recent college graduate, so he's probably pretend dark. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. You know he just got out of his first philosophy class. Well, hopefully his last because he's graduating. I will say that I was watching this and I was just like, oh, he's so annoying. And then she ordered her dinner and I was like, wait, nope, equally annoying. They're both terrible people. (laughs) So Sally has this habit of ordering meals where she'll rapid fire through all of the modifications she wants to the meal. And on the most basic level, it's like, oh, she wants like something on the side. But it builds from that and turns into this cathedral of special ordering. And what's brilliant about the whole thing is that it's not just the lines, which are very good, but Meg Ryan, anytime she's really doing anything, it's a really great performance, but especially when she's doing the ordering or later when she's sending a letter, everything she does is this full body performance. Even ordering a meal is about everything moving around. And it's just hysterical to watch as she's talking about how, look, I want pie and I want vanilla ice cream with it. And I want the pie to be heated and the ice cream on the side, not on top of the pie. And if there's no ice cream, then no pie. No, it's she wants strawberry she'll take vanilla if they have it if it's chocolate she doesn't want anything nothing (laughs) no if it's chocolate whipped cream but only if it's real whipped cream if it's from a can nothing Nothing. right and it's this whole prepared thing she doesn't have to think about it at all which is what makes it land yeah but and just it, the pie, but then not heated. It gives me so much social anxiety to watch this as someone who sits there and rehearses what I'm going to say to the waiter for minutes, maybe even hours before they show like up. That's like someone who's not just going to get a cheeseburger, which is the correct move. So also in this conversation, Harry asks her about whether she's had any great sex or not. Yeah, she had sex with Sheldon the Wonderschlong. There's a whole and, conversation about how you can't have great sex with someone named Sheldon because the name doesn't work. And how she and Sheldon broke up because of her days of the week underpants. Oh, that's right. And the fact that they don't make Sunday, which He was confused about the fact that she had days of the week underwear and he never saw the Sunday and he wanted to know where the Sunday underwear were. And she said they don't make Sunday underwear out of respect for God. Which really just means she lost the Sunday underwear. Um, I love the idea that there's a company that did that. Like, the Chick-fil-A of underpants that said no, we don't do anything with Sunday. Yeah. I really like that she's so open about having sex for like 1989 where she's basically just throughout the movie she's very candid and i mean it builds up to one of the most famous moments of this movie but i really appreciate it because it's very much not like use double entendre or anything like that she's just like look i've had great sex before don't tell me yeah they're both very frank about it it's this is the scene where harry makes his argument that men and women can't be friends because the sex part gets in the way he says that no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive because he always wants to have sex with her, which is when Sally says, oh, well, they can be friends with unattractive women. And he takes a moment, and he thinks about it, and he says, no, they pretty much want to nail them too. This is the point in which they decide that since this is Harry's philosophy, I guess they're not going to be friends. End of movie. Which Sally's really upset about because- Play us out with the music. It's probably Lily Allen. Or Harry Connick Jr. I'm not playing that song. Um, and when he get when they arrive in New York and he gets out of the car, she says, have a nice life out the window. So could be the end of the movie. One thing I find really interesting is that she drops him off in Washington Square Park. I love it. It was so weird. It was just like, they pull up. I thought it was an establishing shot. And then they park the car and they get out. And it was just Bye. like, oh, nope. There, there they are. There's also no cars, like, yeah. moving, no traffic. No one honking. Like, Unless he is, maybe he's going to NYU Law School. But, like, still, very weird spot to choose. Is They're like, we're going to split off here. Maybe he's getting some ice cream across the street from the park. At, like, 6 in the morning? 
It's never too early for ice cream. Also, how is she going to afford having a car in New York? I assume she's going to sell it. Oh, good point. Yeah. Use it to drive across the country, then sell it. So... I think that about does it for point one. We have established that they know each other, but they're not friends. And they never will be. End of movie. (laughs) And they both believe that men and women can't be friends because the men are too busy thinking about the sex all the time. So point number two, we cut to five years later. Um, I would also like to interject that in every transition time jump in this movie, there are these really like kind of cute interviews with all of these old people that are based on some of the interviews that Nora Ephron did when she was writing the movie. And a lot of them are parents of crew members. So it's all of these like elderly people telling these stories about how they met and their long lost loves and running into each other on the street years later and rekindling and it's super cute. Mark, what did you think of that part of the movie? I actually really liked them. I was like not on board at the beginning, but I came around to it as the movie went on. That's how I felt. Well, I was kind of, I was like, oh, this is weird. But then at the end of the first one, the wife gives such a funny look at the camera (laughs) that I was sold. That's this movie is a masterpiece of physical acting. Oh, the face acting. Like not even the, just the like physical elements, the faces of even every extra in this movie is so it's perfect. so on point throughout so i'm so, sorry Catherine. we jumped yeah. five years so we're it's 1982 and we're at the airport we're at the gate in the airport which is always interesting to see nowadays but we have joe sally's new boyfriend of about a month dropping her off for a flight so while they while sally and this new guy joe who we haven't seen before are making out at the gate of the airport in a way somewhat reminiscent of our beginning scene at you chicago agreed harry comes up and is just standing there which is a great moment of i guess again kind of physical comedy because he just kind of stops and like stares at them for a while like he's trying to figure out who they are which he is um It turns out that he and Joe know each other. Yeah, they used to work together. And so he talks to Joe and kind of looks at Sally, but he can't place her and just moves on without really acknowledging her. Sally is like noticeably trying to avoid. Right. She's like kind of trying to hide behind Joe. She's trying to hide. She does not want to be recognized. And when he walks away, she turns to Joe and says that she's glad he couldn't place her because they drove from college to New York and it was the worst night of her life. Yeah. So then we get this nice little moment where Joe tells Sally that he loves her for the first time, and then we get on the plane. And Sally, when she is ordering her drink from the flight attendant, does the same type of ordering thing that she did in the diner when they were driving to New York. And this is what prompts Harry... Who has been creepily staring at her for a while now. Still trying to place her. He still gets the sense that he knows her somehow. This is what prompts him to recognize who she is. And so he switches up to sit next to her. Oh, which is a great moment because he's like, oh, I recognize you and talking to her. She's in the middle seat and the guy on the aisle is just like, oh, do you two know each other? Uh, I can switch. And Sally's just like, no, please don't. Dear God, don't. But then they end up switching. Then they switch. They're talking about the drive. He places her as you Chicago and then figures out exactly how they knew each other. Right. And it was uh, earlier, Sally had forgotten which friend 
had set up the drive, like her name, and then remembered. And then when they were talking on the plane, Harry says something like, oh, I was dating this girl. And Sally's just like, oh, you don't even remember her name. And Harry says, we didn't make it. Like, we didn't sleep together because you were such good friends with this girl. And her response, which is great, is I never consider not sleeping with you a sacrifice. They get off the plane and Harry is like, are you staying over? Let's get dinner. And Sally goes, wait. I'm with somebody else. Like, you know this. Why I, Why would I get dinner with you? And Harry goes, oh, just as friends. And she's like, wait, but you said that men and women can't be friends. And this is a great sequence where he starts to reconsider his principle. He says that men and women who are both in relationships can be friends. And then he reconsiders because he says, oh, then there's an accusation. Like, what? What are you getting from them that you can't get out of our relationship? What? You're not fulfilled by our relationship. So then he decides, actually, no, men and women can't be friends. So then we have another cut, right? Yep. Yep. Five years later, again, 1987. It's a whirlwind. We totally skipped back to the future there. (laughs) Right in the middle. Oh, no. Poor Will. We got a two-hour episode coming up one day. Mark always looks grumpy when I say that because he doesn't think I'm joking. Yeah, I will probably just get up and leave at the one-hour mark, and then Will can finish the episode on his own. Me and Mr. Lepp, still here. So we cut to 1987, and in 1987, we find Meg Ryan, so we find Sally, sitting with her friends and find out that she and Joe, the guy we met at the airport, have just broken up. We also then find out from Harry when he's at a football game with his best friend that he and his wife are separated and getting divorced. One of the best moments in this entire movie is as soon as Sally says that she is, like, no longer dating Joe, her best friend, played by Carrie Fisher, reaches into her purse and pulls out just an entire Rolodex of single available men. It's awesome, but it's also very much out of date. She keeps pulling men and they're like, oh, he got married three years ago. <laughs> yeah, she but has not is updated this dead? in a while. <laughs> I think so. So eventually, Marie and Sally are sitting in a bookstore and they run into Harry. Right, and there's a whole bit there where Sally says, oh, I know him, he's really obnoxious. And Carrie Fisher totally lampshades the rom-com trope of women falling in love with obnoxious men. Where she says, oh yeah, you gotta fall in love with obnoxious men that you see in bookstores. That's how you do it. So they're in the bookstore, and they start talking, and they go to dinner, or go to a cafe or something, and are chatting. And at the end of this dinner, they walk away and say, oh, are we becoming friends? And... Yeah, I guess, I guess we are becoming friends now. So they're putting their rule to the test. To well, see- yeah. And right before that, Harry apologized for being a turd on the bus just under the 10-year statute of limitations on apologies. Yes. And Harry says, a woman friend. You know, you're the first attractive woman I didn't want to sleep with. And Sally takes that as a real compliment. And so now we've gone sort of into montage mode. Yeah. Um, this will be the first edition of our new segment on this show, Montauk. Hashtag Montauk. Hashtag Montauk. Not spelled like the city on Long Island. It's spelled like M-O-N-T-A-L-K. Tweet at us with your favorite montages. Hashtag Montauk. This is another movie that is full of montages. It's not Shrek level, but it's like sideways level. It is. And I think the montages in this movie are actually pretty well done. Yeah, they're pretty good. It's just random phone conversations over their daily lives. Which I love. It's great because it really shows you like kind of what a friendship is. And also the intimacy And of it. it's the intimacy of it all, but it's also just like they are living separate lives. Clearly not a relationship because they're not with each other all the time, but they keep each other updated on everything in their life. Right. I love when he calls her because he can't sleep and she's like, yeah, I can't sleep either i'm just watching casablanca on tv and his response is just channel it's really great and so to 
judge the montages in this movie. We will be rating the montages in Montauk on a scale of one to four. four in be- honor of the four, four montages in honor, Shrek. Yep, four being in honor of the four montages in the movie Shrek. So, so four is the best. Four is the best. One is the worst. And it's not related to how many actual montages there are. It's just based on the quality of the montages. Okay. So, Will, what is your rating on the Montauk? This montage is pretty good. I will say the thing that I love in this montage is when they get to Central Park and they're walking around and Harry adopts this ridiculous dumb, dumb, dumb accent and announces, I have decided that for the rest of the day, we will talk like this. Like this? Like this for the rest of the day. And frankly, I think we should do this for the podcast. I veto this. We are doing it. Hardcore. So that is a thing that I liked a lot. No pepper on my paprika. He gets her to go along with it a bit. I'm just gonna not let this continue. What is your rating, William? Um, yeah, three. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it's a th- not the best montage I've ever no. seen. Three, three and a half. Yeah. I think it's a good three. I think it establishes yeah. that they've gotten really close. They share a bunch of things with each other. Yeah, I think it does its job. And that has been our first edition of hashtag Montage. I want to throw back to one montage in particular. Uh, it's a montage that involves riding a bus. Uh, I was frankly astonished this person knew how to ride a bus, that they had changed to ride the bus, that they understood the use of bus systems, but they found their way then to a nightclub. Well, actually, first they found their way next to a nightclub, and they sat in a big armchair outside the nightclub, and then they realized they were next to the nightclub, and they went in, and they saved Beverly from her manager. All right. You. I need We're you to say on. the words. I'm not saying it. Nope. This is not an addition because I refuse to say the words. Say the words. Nope. This Catherine, is say the, the words for me. This is the end of the first installment of Montauk. Hashtag Montauk. Let us know your rating on the scale of one to four. I'm so happy. <laughs> Moving on. Nope. Can't do it. Moving on. So, kind of after this first establishing montage, we have this great moment in the movie where they decide to go on a double date. Before this, actually, it's worth noting, in Central Park, he suggests that they go get dinner that night, and she says she can't because she has a date. And he's kind of thrown by that, and she says, yeah, she hadn't mentioned it because she felt weird because of how much time they spent together. So the relationship is a very close one. It's one where it's a little bit odd, but still, they're friends. They're both in uncharted territory, and you can tell that, where they're not used to this they're figuring it out as they go along absolutely and i have to point out at one point in this movie meg ryan goes full madonna side pony and i'm here for it it's incredible i just we got to the point in my notes where i wrote that down and i just needed to point it out it's a great look also before we move on to the double date we also need to mention it's in this period that they go to a restaurant and meg ryan fakes an orgasm ah yes so they're at a restaurant and i forget how it comes up uh, Harry was talking about how he had slept with some girl and he knew that, like, she had enjoyed herself. And Sally's like, well, how do you know that? And he's like, Is this oh, the girl that he I made know. meow? I think so. I think it is the girl he made meow. Yeah. And she's kind of poking fun, questioning him on the fact that he goes through so many women, how he, like, is constantly figuring out how to leave the right. situation, stuff yeah. along those lines. Sitting after sex and saying, like, all right, how long do I have to hold her before I can go home? Right. And so she's like, how do you know? And he's like, well, they like they orgasm and she's like most women have faked it most guys don't think it has happened to them so you do the math and he goes oh well well i would know and so then she fakes her orgasm they still have a sign above the table that they filmed it at and after she fakes an orgasm then an older woman in the restaurant says to her waiter i'll have what she's having 
That line is delivered by Rob Reiner's mother. Yes. I have a question to ask. Yes. Why is it such a common trope for any man-to-man relationship conversation to take place in a batting cage? I don't know. I've only been to a batting cage once in my life, and I did not care for it. Yeah, it's so weird. There's so many movies I can, like, I can't think, this one, Big Sick, which is probably doing it in reference to this movie. But there's so many movies where the only way they can have men sharing emotion is to put them in a hyper-masculine environment. Well, it gives them an opportunity to hit things while they talk about their feelings. Right. They have to shy away from overly feminizing the men, clearly. The one time I went to a batting cage, I think it was a particularly bad one, but the balls are just so low that I had to like squat on the ground and swing. I looked like an idiot. I think I may have been to one too, but I feel like I've repressed the memory because I can guarantee it was not positive. The one virtue of the one in Big Sick is that's the situation that gives us the scene where Kumail has to say, no, he's an American. Yeah. (laughs) Not a terrorist. We love America. Yeah. That could have taken place in other restaurants. So it's just like, why why do batting cages show up so often? I don't know. Uh, I think Mr. Lep knows, but he's not talking. Yeah, he's just staring into Mark's soul. He has some laryngitis this week. Leopardgitis. Boo! You don't want me to have any fun. <laughs> I love puns, Will. That would barely count. It's not a pun. <laughs> anyway, so after this, we go to New Year's Eve, and Harry and Sally are at a New Year's Eve party, and they agree to go to the party together again next year if they're still both single. They run outside during the countdown to the new year, and they do a really quick, like, sort of laughing kiss and then hug. That's nice. It's friends. It's mm. cute. Yes. Yeah. And then we go to the double date. So Harry and Sally agree to set up their best friends with each other. So it's Sally and Marie and Harry and Jess are going on this double date. So we go to the restaurant. Everybody's kind of having some awkward conversation. But then Marie and Jess immediately hit it off. Exactly. Nothing clicks until Marie and Jess start talking to each other. Well, Marie quotes an article that it turns out Jess wrote and they immediately hit it off and they're just into each other from that point. Oh, yeah. And after the dinner, they're talking, and it's just like, both Harry and Sally are worried about upsetting the other. So they're kind of just like, oh, you shouldn't pursue this right away. Like, Sally's telling Murray, oh, you shouldn't pursue this right away, just in case. Like, Harry's pretty fragile since his divorce. Right, so you don't want to hurt him in the other way. But so they Harry's both... telling Jess, like, right. oh, like totally go for marie but give it some time sally's just getting back out into dating right and so then marie and jess both agree and then they go back together as a group and then marie calls a cab and jess is just like yep bye and they both just jump into the same cab and drive away it's great and then the next thing we know they're moving into this house together and harry and sally are at sharper image trying to find a gift to get them like did this movie take place before karaoke became a thing i don't know but i love it i think it's like when karaoke was becoming a thing thing. because he calls it he's like oh i've heard of this it's a singing machine right and i was just like what and then he defines what karaoke is and i was just like what world are we living in that's this old that has the two cassette tapes and i loved it and it's an original singing machine so the song that sharper image has set up with the display of the singing machine is surrey with a fringe on top from one of the worst songs in oklahoma probably the worst song in oklahoma mark what's the best song in oklahoma do you think i know oklahoma yeah? I do not. Catherine, best song in Oklahoma? I mean, it kind of has to be a What a Beautiful Morning, right? Yeah, it probably is. Like, I really like making Farmer and the Cowman jokes, but I it's l- not the best song. Right. Like, it's a fun song. 
But the best song like the has farmer and the cowman be... should be acquaintances at least. What we need is the Harry and Met Sally. Can farmers and cowmen really be friends, or will the sex get in the way? Uh, that that <laughs> that's might be That's what they next should tell Aunt episode, Eller. Right? We need Billy Crystal to walk in off city slickers and tell Aunt Eller that the farmers and cowmen can never be friends. Yep. So Harry and Sally start singing "Surrey with a fringe on top" as probably as badly as you possibly can in the middle of a sharper image. The best use of that song ever in a thing is there's a West Wing episode in season two, I think, where Donna is talking about going to some bar and Josh says he hates going there because the pianist it must be season three because Amy is in it yeah. and Josh says he hates going to that bar because the pianist only knows the surrey with the fringe, <laughs> fringe on, top. on top and then later on there's a scene at that bar and they never draw attention to it but in the background is just like a piano bar playing that song is that the bar is that when they get into the bar fight is that no that that's episode? season one. Oh no you're right okay so while they're singing Harry suddenly stops and who walks up but his ex-wife Helen no. and her new boyfriend ira so harry and sally kind of get through it it's really awkward harry's obviously really upset and then they go over to jess and marie's new place where jess and maria are arguing over this table this hideous hideous table so ugly and it's also, a wagon wheel table with like a knob sticking up out of the middle of it they're moving in together after being together for like three months yeah it's insane how fast jess and marie move it works if for that, them if three months yeah it's crazy. So then leads to one of my other favorite lines in the movie. Um, Harry gets really frustrated with their argument over this coffee table and starts yelling, look back and like six years later, you'll be singing Surrey with a fringe on top in front of Ira! And storms out all completely upset. Sally kind of explains it away and then they go outside and have a fight over their dating habits and what they've been doing and how he's not taking care of himself emotionally, which kind of starts hinting at how attached to each other that they've become. Right. I think this brings us to the next point, right? Or does something else happen? I can't remember. Yeah, there's kind of some more montage-y things that are showing. They might have some twinges of jealousy as they're dating other people. Right, we have another time jump to a point where they're dating a a shorter time jump to a point where they're seeing other people but then what really happens is to start us on to our fourth point i believe is she calls him late one night So Sally has heard from her ex, Joe, that he is getting married. So she calls Harry and has him come over. This is really upsetting because when they broke up, she understood that Joe didn't want to get married at all. Right. That was one of the reasons they broke up is because Joe didn't want to get married. And she said she was okay with it, but then she started wanting to have kids. And then that was like the final nail in the coffin. So the idea of Joe now getting married, now getting married really throws her off. Right. Her expression is all this time he'd been saying that he didn't want to get married, but the truth is he didn't want to marry me. And an uh, important thing to notice is that I don't think it's been established that they've broken up with the people they were dating. So it's not established, but it's also never acknowledged again. Right. Right. What I noticed, because it's very soon after that scene, is that Sally's first choice for friendship is still Harry. Mm -hmm. Like, when she needs a friend, she calls Harry. Or more than a friend. Foreshadowing. Whoa, because at one point he's going to leave and she asks him to stay and comfort her for a bit. Mm-hmm. And so he's doing that. And then they do it. Well, they share some platonic kisses. Yes, they do. On the lips, which is not something that I've ever done with a friend. Come on over. <laughs> Give it a shot. <laughs> uh, no. No. And then that platonic kiss, surprisingly enough, 
turns into a more than platonic kiss. Who could have seen that coming? So there's a podcast called Porn Minus Porn, where they have actors read the scripts of porn movies. But then whenever they get to the actual like sex part, they just say, and then they have sex and move on to the next part. And that's what I thought of in this movie, because we're watching this whole scene build up. And then Harry and Sally are kissing. And then we just cut to them both naked in bed, having already had sex. So yeah, so we cut to them naked in bed. Harry's staring like... He's got these dead eyes. It's really uncomfortable to watch. Do Sally's like comfortable? She's kind of like trying to be sexy, which is kind of a weird look on Meg yeah. Ryan at this point. Sally, you can tell, sees this as like, oh, like this is happening. This is becoming a thing. We're taking this to the next level. And Harry's just like, oh my god, I've made a huge mistake. So they go to bed, and then the next morning, she wakes up to him dressing to leave. He says he has to go home, change for work, but he'll call her about dinner or something. And she's definitely shaken up about it. Right. And so they're both kind of freaking out. And they call Jess and Marie, which leads to a pretty funny scene where Jess and Marie are on separate phones in the same bed. It's incredible they have separate phone lines in, in their the bedroom. same room. <laughs> That's one thing that I've is never decadent. I did not notice that at all. I mean, their house is gorgeous right how they can afford it also a thing yeah that's as a writer and a window dresser um, i don't know what those window dresses make you want your windows naked and jess and marie <laughs> it should be pointed out are both encouraging them to like make it a thing and right to absolutely have, keep having sex essentially. they're big fans of it they're excited that it's happening. yeah they're they both see it kind of as sally does where it's like oh finally this is happening we've been waiting for it to happen good job but instead when we see them at dinner harry leads off and says it was a mistake Yeah, so they decide it's a mistake. And we get another time jump. They have, well, the most awkward dinner known to man. And we get another montage, actually. Oh, you're right. Which kind of shows them doing a bunch of the things that they had previously done together, but now alone. And then we do time jump kind of to... To Jess and Marie's wedding. Jess and Marie's wedding. Which I believe is three weeks later. Oh my god, they move so fast. It's a fast fast relationship, but it works. The thing is, I feel like the point of it is it's supposed to be the comparison, like this is how a normal relationship happens, a traditional relationship to compare to Harry and Sally. Right. So it's just so fast. Well, I think that's also a contrast to how long their whole story is. There's a 12 year one. Yeah. So at Jess and Marie's wedding, Harry... It's clear they haven't talked in a while. Sally asks if Harry's seeing anybody. Yeah, and they have this kind of huge blow up where they end up storming into the kitchen. As one does. this fight, which again is a movie trope. And as they're leaving to fight, Jess gives a toast that was like to Harry and Sally who... Because we didn't find them attractive. Yeah. We got together with each which other. Which is just such poor timing. It's a funny toast it's though. It's funny. So they kind of have this whole conversation at one point. They're shouting at each other. Sally thinks Harry's comparing her to a dog. Like, it's nothing is resolved. But I will point out that Harry admits his mistakes very readily in this movie. He does, he which is I apologizing appreciate. a lot. He's yeah. a guy who can be obnoxious pretty easily, but also acknowledges his own obnoxiousness and try. I don't know if he tries to be better, but he tries to acknowledge when he's been obnoxious. And so Sally's just still really upset and doesn't want to talk to him. Yeah. Um, so then we jump again. It's Christmas time. And Harry's calling and leaving voicemails. He's promising to grovel in the holiday spirit. He leaves a voicemail singing to her at one point, which reminded me. me, Reminded me of there's an episode of Better Call Saul in season two where the lead female character, uh, the name is escaping me right now, but 
she's refusing to answer Jimmy's phone calls. And so his thing is, he's like, look, every morning I'm going to keep calling and singing. So over the course of the episode, he works his way through the score of South Pacific one song at a time every morning. He also has that call where it's like, either you're not home when you want to talk to me, you're home and you don't want to talk to me, or you're home and you want to talk to me and you're crushed by something. Yeah, you're crushed. So if it's A or C, call me back. And that's the time then that she picks up and he asks, he's like, hey, it's New Year's Eve again. We said that we would go to the party together if we weren't seeing anybody. And Sally's like, look, I can't do this anymore. I'm not your consolation prize. Which I'm a little confused what she means by that. Because it's like consolation prize in my mind implies like... He, there was somebody else that he wanted to be There was somebody with. else that he wants. Which I guess maybe she's comparing herself to Helen. But I don't really know. Well, I think it's more that just... I think she thinks that he's like settling for her. Like... Instead of uh, he, doing whatever it is he wants to be doing with his life, he's like, oh, you know, whatever. So yeah. she's been here forever. We we get along, and I get, yeah, yeah. I just feel like consolation prize was confusing to me, and I, I get what she kind of means, but so then we see she goes to the party with Marie and Jess, and we get Harry. This is our our fifth point, right? Yeah, yeah we're now we're on our point fifth point. five. So she goes to the party with Marie and Jess, and Harry is walking lonely through the streets of New York while the dialogue about whether men and women can be friends plays over a montage of scenes from the movie. I wrote in all caps, MONTAGE! Somebody please write us a montage song that we can play, just like a little ditty like, Hey now, it's a montage! Bam! We'll do it. Hashtag Montauk, hashtag BFACS, send it to us. Hashtag we love to love. That sounded like something that would have been on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend right there. <laughs> hashtag it's the sound, it's the feeling. That's the sound we want. So yeah, so Harry's walking around all dejected. Sally's at the party. And she tells Marie and Jess she's going to leave because it'd be a bummer not to kiss anybody. And around that time, Harry's like, you know what? I'm going to run to the party through the streets of New York. He can't get a cab, so he just sprints all the way there. Gets to the party right before the ball right. drops. Inexplicably, he he can still talk because I feel like it's implied that he's been running for a while. So I it feel be, like he should have shown up. It would be really funny like, if he were totally out of breath <gasps> and wheezing through the rest of the movie. But he's not. And he gives this huge heartfelt speech, which I think has become one of the best speeches in rom-com history. Yeah. She accuses him of just having come because it's New Year's Eve and that's a time where you do things like that. Right. And he then says, no, I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And she's kind of like, well, I can't hate you. And like, actually, I love you. And then they make out. End of movie. Kiss at midnight. But the movie almost didn't end that way because in the original draft, they don't make out and they do become friends again, but that was it. Because Rob Reiner, at the point in his life that they were putting the movie together and that he and Efren were working on the script together, he was like, no, you're single again and it sucks and that's the end of your life. (laughs) And he really just didn't see a way that the movie ended with them together. And then while they were shooting the movie, actually a couple weeks before they started shooting it, his good friend, the director of photography on this movie, Barry Sonnenfeld, later the director of the Addams Family movies, the Men in Black movies, he's now the showrunner for a series of Unfortunate Events, but he was the DP on this and he said hey i know the girl you're gonna marry and reiner was like sure whatever and then while shooting the movie there was a photographer working on the movie michelle singer who reiner met and fell in love with and then changed the ending because it's like oh maybe your life can go on and it was the woman that barry sonnenfeld was talking about that's pretty incredible that's yeah so it's because of reiner meeting michelle singer that you got that ending Catherine. yeah i am into the idea of this movie ending with them as friends because i feel like we should establish as a society that men and women 
and can be friends. I think the movie still does. Yeah, yeah. but there's nothing like there's no movie that explicitly kind of is just about like male female friendship. Male female friendships. Right. And I think this movie too, I think there is in the rom-com world, which I think you guys have talked about before, there is this kind of unrealistic expectation that's set that it's the person who's right for you is the person who's been there all along, which isn't really ever the case in real life. I guess in some cases it is. But I mean, that's more than rom-coms. That's the Wizard of Oz. That's the power was inside you the whole time. But it, you know, it's all of these rom-coms are this person who has been your best friend. It's yeah. Well, you know, your best friend, you see him in a new light. Yay. So that's actually a good point for us to transition. You know, we watched this 12-year relationship. Do you find it believable? I I definitely think I do because I know a lot of people who something like this has happened to, but I don't think it has to happen that way. Yeah, I will say that at one point, one of them is just like, this city has 8 million people. How do we keep running into each other? And it's supposed to be, that's unbelievable. But every that's time- That's the second time this movie lampshades a trope that they're right. going into. But the thing is, every time I go to New York, I have seen someone that I know from not being in New York. Huh. Like, I've seen someone from high school or Georgetown, like, at the same place. So- it definitely happens. It happens. It's insane how much it happens, but it does. Yeah, I'm, I mostly believe it. And like, I don't know, my cousins have like married people that they were friends with for a really long time. Or did they sprint through New York first? They did not sprint Doesn't count New York then. First. Yeah, that's fair. But I think, you know. Did they get struck by lightning at least? N- again, no. Soul train. <laughs> Oh God! But I think I think really the original ending would have been believable too. Absolutely, um, yeah. So I think it's believable. So where would you rate it on our ten point scale, Catherine? Your movie, you go first. Oh, why do I have to go first? Because we said so. We make the rules here, not you. Welcome to the Lep Zone. Mr. Lep doesn't make the rules. Mr. Lep agrees with me. That's why we're holding hands. <laughs> okay, Mr. Lep is staring at me. He wants I'd answers. Probably, I'd probably put it like. Nine, like nine territory. Wow. Eight, nine. I just think I, I've seen it happen before. What were you thinking, Will? I was in like seven, eight territory. I believe it, but I'm like, eh. I think I'm at an eight. Okay. I can do an eight. I was, yeah, I was kind of in the eight, nine. It's high. It's definitely really yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that Harry and Sally are dateable? Sally? I've been really back on forth on this over yeah, the last couple me days. Too. Sally, like, throughout the movie, kind of gets less annoying. And so, like, I could. could you put up with the ordering? S- that's what I was literally <laughs> just about to say. I could date Sally in every regard. She likes movies. She's, like, a nice person, blah, blah, blah. But ordering dinner at a restaurant with her, I would get such bad social anxiety every time that I don't think it could work out. What about Harry? Um, nah. <laughs> He's kind of annoying. I think I could date Sally. I, like, I think I'm type A enough to, that would be a lot of type A in a relationship, though. But I think she, I think she comes into her own own a little bit. This one's also hard because you see them at their worst as annoying college graduates. And then they both mature into much better people. But I don't know. I still just, like, I don't see myself dating Harry, but I wouldn't say he's undateable. I think they're both dateable. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they're both dateable for me. Yeah. But they're definitely dateable. Harry's a little doom and gloom. Um, okay, then if you had to date somebody in the movie, who would it be? I mean, my go-to answer is Marie, but that's just because it's Carrie Fisher. Fair. That was also maybe going to be my answer. (laughs) The first thing Um, I wrote was just like, the first joke I thought of was Estelle Reiner, who seems like a fun lady in this movie. (laughs) I thought about that one too. And then I wrote down Jess, who also seems like a fun dude that I could have a good time with. Yeah, I think Marie and Jess are both good options. Yeah, they're They're awesome. They're stable people. The only other two characters with developed personalities. Hey! Um, I also thought of a joke answer 
answer being Mr. Zero, who is the (laughs) mover. When Helen was leaving Harry, she hired movers, and the mover showed up with a t-shirt on that said, like, don't F Mr. Zero. (laughs) And so then they just referred to him as Mr. Zero the whole time. Basically, anyone that just is staring deadpan at the camera during the diner scene also is on my list. All great. But I think Marie or Jess. Yeah. But yeah, I think that about does it for when Harry met Sally. Dot, dot, dot. dot, dot. Hashtag dot, dot, dot. Next week, we'll be really celebrating the summer movie part of Hashtag Podcast Summer by taking a look at one of the greatest of all blockbusters, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is such a good movie. I'm really excited. I'm excited. It's going to be a great time. This is a great time for you to do your podcast summer thing and get a friend of yours to listen to the podcast. Uh, Did we forget dating advice? No, No. we get to that later. Oh. Wow, Catherine, maybe listen to an episode or two sometime. I've listened to every episode, Mark. (laughs) Anyway, as a reminder, podcast summer, get somebody you know to actually listen to an episode and then tweet it at us. Hashtag podcast summer. Until next time, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Heart of Podness, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at Heart of Podness at gmail.com. Also be sure to rate, review, and subscribe and keep sending us those stories. Okay, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Catherine? Um, probably, probably be a little bit more like Sally. She knows what she wants and she doesn't settle for not what she wants so my advice don't turn an ugly ass old wagon wheel into a table so there's a moment that i very much liked that i highlighted in the episode in which they're in the park and harry tells sally and gets her to go along with it that they're going to talk in dumb voices for the rest of the day so my advice is overcommit to dumb bits and you will wind up with someone great either yeah either that or don't sing sorry with a fringe on top in public Just don't sing it ever. Yeah. All right. So there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. A couple seconds just for dead air. Every time you say dead air, I just think dead air, dead air, dead air, dead air, dead air, dead air, dead air. You're fired. Dead air.